Hello, everybody. Hope you're doing well. And I wanted to give an introduction to what each of our men's and women's Bible studies will be doing uh, for six weeks through the summer. So both our men's and women's Bible study groups will be working through Psalm 1 and the book by Martin Lloyd-Jones called True Happiness. And our men's Bible study meets on Thursday mornings at 6.30 in the morning. And we have two women's groups that meet uh, Wednesday morning at 7 and then Thursday uh, afternoon at 3. But we would love to invite everyone who's uh, not able to join us to still take part in the study. And uh, I wanted to set up the studies by um, telling you a little bit about Martin Lloyd-Jones and kind of what he's doing in these in these sermons because it's it's a book but they're actually transcriptions of sermons that he preached and so he was a British pastor whose kind of heyday was the 1950s in London and he's who I did my uh, dissertation on so I have a special affection for him in my heart but these sermons on Psalm 1 were actually preached uh, in January of 1963. So there are four sermons and they're evangelistic sermons. So he's intentionally trying to uh, preach the gospel. And so I'm going to uh, attach to this podcast actually the first sermon in that series. But as you're listening to it, or if you're you're reading through following along on the book, just a couple things I wanted to make note of to kind of help you uh, get into the, the sermon or the chapter. Um, keep in mind that these, these are sermons, so he's, he's preaching them, and the, the timing is important. So it's January 1963, and uh, the 60s was a difficult decade in Lloyd-Jones's life. He was born in 1899, died in uh, 1981, and so he's, um, he's 60, 62 at this time, so 63. And the 60s are probably the hardest decade of his life. Um, he believed that the 1950s and the early 1960s witnessed some of the greatest degree of change that he had experienced in, in his life in the 20th century. And uh, he had actually had spent the summers from 1960 to 1962 traveling around, and he spoke in hundreds of churches all over the United Kingdom. Uh, so that's England, Wales. He's a Welshman. So that's the accent you'll hear if you listen to the sermon. And in Scotland, and uh, he came back from that that time um, really discouraged and frustrated. He felt like there was just in general a disregard for the truth of the gospel. He felt like there was a spiritual coldness and an apathy that he encountered in the churches that really uh, discouraged him. And then the effect in the broader culture is that this is kind of Britain post-World War II. They had kind of gone through all the different austerity measures of the 1950s and were uh, coming out of that. But one historian is called the timing, uh, the early 1960s in Britain, the Great Coarsening, where people were just getting uh, harder and more isolated. And so it was a very difficult time uh, for him and the country. And so as you're listening to the sermon, it's important to keep that in the back of your mind. So think kind of the, the cultural upheaval of the 1960s and think about, all right, how his, is he trying to um, preach the gospel in this, in this uh, cultural environment? And so really the, the church in post-war Britain was really reeling. 
And it was just commonly assumed that if the church was going to stay relevant in a atomic age, then there must be drastic changes that needed to be made both to the message and then to the methodology. And so the great question that everyone was wrestling with was how do you reach the modern man? And so you can kind of hear him uh, emphasizing emphasizing that. A couple other things to think about as you, you listen or read through this sermon. Uh, Lloyd-Jones was trained as a medical doctor, and one thing that was essential to his medical training was the necessity for clarity and precision in your use of terms. So one of the great gifts that Lloyd-Jones can give us is his uh, incredibly sharp mind, so he can help teach us how to think and think clearly. And one of the things that he was taught and he was trained in is that if you want to think clearly, you have to first uh, clear away the negative. So in this first sermon, you'll hear him doing that. He'll, uh, he thought if you wanted to think clearly, oftentimes you have to remove the, the debris of poor thinking. And uh, so you think about it, you know, you clear out the clutter and then you can focus in on what's there. So you can see this over and over. Like he'll emphasize, if you really want to know what true happiness is, you have to first understand all the things that happiness is not. And then you remove those things and you can focus in on what it is. And then notice another thing that he does really well. And if you're reading along, it's about page 24 or towards the end of the sermon. Notice how powerfully he uses rhetorical questions. So he'll just ask some powerful questions where he's really driving the truth home. So don't, um, don't just fly over those. Pause and let them have their intended effect. So these are some of my favorite sermons that he preached, the first four sermons on Psalm 1. So here's, here's the first one. So I uh, hope you enjoy and you have your uh, mind challenged and your heart encouraged. I should like to call your attention this evening to the first two verses in the first psalm. The first psalm and the first two verses in the first psalm. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. I call attention to those words because they seem to me to be what the Bible has to give to us and to say to us all by way of a New Year message. You notice that this is a psalm of six verses. It can be divided up into three portions, each of two verses. But tonight we are looking only at the first two verses. Now, this first psalm is a very interesting psalm. It is the first psalm, and that has a very real significance. The authorities are agreed, undoubtedly they're right, that it is a kind of general introduction to the whole of the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms is a book that teaches a definite philosophy, a view of life. Here it is in this poetic form. You get it in the Proverbs, in the wisdom literature, you get it in the more didactic portions, the more theological portions of the Bible. But here it is in this particular form. Cast very often in the form of an experience through which the writer, the psalmist, had passed. And how he had understood the teaching of God with respect to that 
and how God in that very experience had led him into a yet further and deeper understanding of his ways with respect to men. So it is in many ways, I say, an introduction to the whole of the book of Psalms. And therefore we can find in it, as we'd expect and anticipate, the basic teaching and philosophy of this entire book. But it is at the same time, and for the reason I've just been giving, a very good introduction, therefore, and summary to the whole message of the entire Bible. For I say again tonight what I said this morning, the Bible has only one message in it. It puts that message in a variety of ways, but it's only one message. There's only one theme in the Bible, and that is man in his relationship to God. There's quite a lot here of geography and geology, great deal of history, great deal about kings, princes, wars, fightings, births, marriages, deaths, endless details. But there's only one theme, there's only one message. It's man in his relationship to God and what God has done about us men and our salvation. So in every part and portion, you get this great theme brought out, and as it is the great theme of the book of Psalms as a whole, in particular, it's concentrated here in this first psalm, so that we are entitled to say that we have here the kind of distillation of the essential teaching of the Bible with respect to men and his life in this world of time. That's why I'm calling your attention to it. We are creatures of time, and that's why new years and old years make a difference to us. We divide up in this way. There's nothing wrong in that. Nothing wrong in it as long as we use it in the right way. Anything that makes me stop and consider and pause and meditate is a good thing. And if the mere fact that this is now 1963, whereas it was 1962 when uh, the remnant met together here last Sunday night, well, it's, that's a good thing in itself, I say, as long as it makes us look into these matters and consider our whole relationship to Almighty God. But someone may say to me, why do you do this? Aren't you a little bit behind the times? Aren't you a sort of anachronism in this modern world? Can't you give us something up to date? Can't you give us something modern? Can't you give us some new teaching? We're in a new world, post-war world, the atomic world, scientific age. Why do you take us back to that? Can't you face life as it is today and give us the essence of your understanding and your meditation upon it and what others are thinking and advocating? Why don't you try to look into the future and forecast to us what's going to happen? Why don't you tell us what we ought to be doing, what we ought to be agitating and about and trying to get our statesmen to do. Why don't you try to draw up some plan for world order or a better way of living? Why don't you do something like that? Why do you go back to that old book of yours still? Why don't you do something new in this new year into which we have just entered? Well, I feel it's a fair question. I'm not objecting to it. I'm going to answer it. And the answer to it is this. It's given here in a book in this Bible called the book of Ecclesiastes. And the answer is, 
there is nothing new under the sun, nothing at all, nothing new. If somebody could demonstrate to me that uh, the conditions in which man finds himself in the world tonight are really different, well then I'd think there was something in that argument demanding a new approach. But I think I shall be able to show you this evening that there's nothing different at all. I mean by that that man's condition in this world is still what it has always been. You notice what people were looking for in the time of the psalmist. What was it? Happiness. Happy is the man. That's it. Happy is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. Blessed. Happy. They were looking for happiness. And this man knew that. He'd been looking for it himself. So you see, the fundamental need of men still tonight is happiness. We are not the first people that wanted to be happy. Man has always been looking for this. The whole story of life, history, civilization has been nothing but this great quest on the part of men for happiness. Nobody wants to be miserable. Nobody wants to be unhappy. Everybody's looking for joy and happiness and rejoicing. So that, you see, the conditions are exactly the same. There's nothing new. Ah, but you said, look at the world. But the world has always been as it is. The world has always been a place of war, always been a place of jealousy and envy and malice and spite and disappointment. It's always been like that. The fact that it's now in this dramatic form of bombs doesn't make any difference to the thing in and of itself. A cannon at one time used to be quite as terrifying as the bomb is to us. It's simply the form that's changed, the essential conditions, the precarious state of life in this world is not something new. There's nothing new under the sun. Well, therefore, I say that uh, there is no need to leave this old teaching because it faces the same problem. But I've got a much higher reason than that for calling your attention to this. And that it is, it is that this is God's teaching. You see, all else is man's teaching. Oh, I know the philosophers have investigated this problem of happiness. They've written their utopias, some of them. Just that, was, that was what it was all about, seeking for happiness, for blessedness. Ah, oh, but you see, it's all come to nothing. Here we have God's prescription for happiness. God's. That's why I go back to this. It's because this book is essentially and altogether different from every other book. Not a human book. Not a human production. Not a human invention, not a category and a list of human thoughts. It's God's revelation. It always has been, it still is. And it's the thing that the world needs tonight, as much as it has ever needed it, if not indeed even more so. But let me add a further reason. Here is a teaching that is confirmed by the experience of the ages. Here is a book which in a sense comes and puts it as the 37th Psalm puts it. I have been young and now I'm old. A man speaking out of his experience. So you get here the experience of individuals, the experience of nations. And it's a very good thing, you know, to look back across a span of history. We think we know so much and that we are so clever and we are so different. You know, the more you look back and read the history, the more you'll find that, as I say, there is nothing new under the sun. 
Ant-Man has always been in his present predicament and has always been seeking for this happiness that eludes him. Isn't it a good thing, therefore, to look back across this record in which men and nations will tell us of the false way and the true way? The record of those who say, at last, I found it. This is it. That's what you've got here. The men who believed God's instruction and to put it into practice. That's another reason for going back. And then finally, I put it like this, that it's a book that confronts us and brings plainly and clearly before us the great fundamental choice. Now, that leads me to make a remark or two about the whole biblical method of facing the problem of life. And the thing that differentiates the Bible from every other book and every other teaching. The glory of this is that it's essentially simple. I don't know that you ever tried reading these books in philosophy. I find them very difficult. Where they're involved, tell me knowledge. Who can follow them? Thank God he has a book that's simple, direct plain. A book that reduces the complexity of the problem to just one big thing. The Bible is always putting it like this. It says, you know, you're confronted by two alternatives. And there are only two. It says that from the beginning to the end. Only two alternatives. The way of God, the way of Satan, the way of Abel, the way of Cain, the way of Jacob, the way of Esau. Here is a man who's a good man. He's a godly man, the righteous man. There's the ungodly, the wicked. It's always these alternatives. Now, the Bible, I say, therefore, is a unique book that it puts it simply, it puts directly, it puts it plainly, and reduces all the complexity to just this one thing. Which way am I going? It's either this or that. And, of course, it goes further. It helps me by putting it in the form of illustrations. And that's what we've got in this song. We're looking at two men. Oh, if we but realized God's heart of love, he wants us to know, he wants us to understand. He stoops to our weakness, he condescends to our ignorance. He uses pictures, illustrations, history, anything to bring the truth home to us. And this is what he's doing here. You see, we've got two men. The ungodly and the righteous. We've got a wrong way and a right way. We've got a bad way and a good way. We've got a negative way and a positive way. Now, that's very wonderful, that that's the essence of good teaching. That the matter is not only put before us positively, but also negatively. In order that we can see the contrast, and we are helped by illustrations, here it is for us. We are invited by the psalmist to look at two types of men. Very well. What is the teaching, therefore? Here we are, we are all anxious to be happy. Oh, the blessedness, says this man. Oh, the blessedness of this man, this righteous man. Yes, but uh, the question is, how's he got it? How's he get there? How has he got hold of this happiness? That's the question. Now then, listen to the Bible's teaching with respect to that most vital matter of all. You want to be happy, don't you? You'd like to be able to think that you're going through this year 1963 as a happy man or a happy woman, blessed in spite of what may happen to you. It's possible.
How is it possible? Well, listen, here's the Bible's teaching. And trying to emulate the example of the Bible and its teachers, I have also tried to divide up this matter in order to make it simple. Oh, that we may start this new year in a right way. Let me come down to the ele elements of this matter. How do we divide it? Theory and practice. That's it, isn't it? Theory, practice. The right way of approach, always. Look at the theory of the thing, then what's it tell you actually to do? That's exactly what we're given here in these two verses. Now, to look at the theory for a moment, and the theory is most important. Never believe the man who tells you that you don't need the theory, that you just plunge into the practice of a thing. No, no, if you're wise, you'll read about it first. Understand a little bit about the theory before you begin to get going at it. Well, now, what is it? Well, I put it like this to you. The first thing the Bible tells us is that happiness is possible. I think that's the most staggering thing that one can say in a world like this. Happiness, blessedness is possible in this world. Now, why do I emphasize that? Well, I emphasize it for this reason, that I say this is the most surprising thing of all. And that is the great message of the Bible. It comes to us as we are, and it says, there is happiness, there is blessedness possible. Now, we all start out in life in this world thinking that uh, we can easily find happiness and keep it. Nobody will deny that, I'm certain. We all think that uh, we've got some secret that nobody's ever had before us. Those middle-aged people we say when we're young, and those old people, they've gone astray, of course, fools. They don't understand. Look at them. Back numbers. We know. We've got the secret. We are going to find it. We all start out like that. But, you know, this isn't being pessimistic. It's just being true to facts to say that we haven't gone very far before we begin to suspect that it's not as easy as we thought. And we soon find that if there's anything that is utterly elusive in this world, it is happiness. And what's the next stage? Well, you see, the ultimate stage is this with most people, indeed with all people, unless they become Christian. They fall, perhaps, into despair and an utter sense of hopelessness. They put it in the terms of the first line of that hymn which we sang just now. Peace? Perfect peace in this dark world of sin? Impossible. Utterly impossible. With loved ones far away. With the possibility of war, with treachery, with disappointments. Peace? Perfect peace? In this dark world of sin? Impossible, they say. There are many in that condition tonight who are filled with utter despair, who are entirely hopeless. Now, whether we like it or not, you see, it is just a fact that the greatest literature in the world tonight happens to be tragic literature. Shakespeare's greatest plays are his tragedies. The greatest literature that came out of Greece, the Greek tragedies. Why? Well, because life is tragic. That is where this Peter Pan butterfly idea of life is just 
nonsense. The whole of everything that's great and big in life has always proclaimed what a Spanish writer once described as the tragic sense of life. Life is a tragedy. Tragedy appears in life everywhere. It's all around us. And this is the great problem in the quest of men. That's why he's seeking for happiness, because he finds himself in the midst of tragedy. But I say, so many come to the conclusion that it's impossible. And that the only outcome is the outcome depicted so brilliantly by Shakespeare. The last scene, almost everybody being killed. That's the end of it all. Tragedy. But others uh, go beyond it. They are not only filled with despair and an utter sense of hopelessness, they become cynical. Life, they say, what is it? Well, Shakespeare, again, knowing all kinds and types of humanity, he's put it into the mouth of one of them. He says, what is it? It's nothing but a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. That's cynicism. That's life. Tale told by an idiot. And when you read the history of the human race, you can't help feeling but that there's something in that. What are these wars and all the preparation for wars but sheer idiocy, lunacy, madness? Man's an idiot. He's a fool. The cynic uh, says that. He's come to see it and he says it. Oh, some of the poets have put it. Here's one of them, typical cynic. I fought with none, for none was worth my strife. Nature I loved, and next to nature, art. I warmed both hands before the fire of life. It sinks, and I'm ready to depart. That's the blase, cynical attitude of so many today. Another man, another one of them put it like this. Since every man who lives is born to die, and none can burst sincere felicity, with equal mind what happens, let us bear, nor joy nor grieve too much for things beyond our care. Like pilgrims to the appointed place we tend, the world's an inn, and death, the journey's end. Very well, he says, don't be too happy, don't be too miserable. Just go through it as best you can, not crying over spilt milk, not hoping for anything. Cynicism. There's always a fly in the ointment, says the cynic. No matter what you're doing, no where you are, there's always a fly in the ointment. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Now, that's the conclusion the world comes to, the intelligent world. Uh, the moment you get a thinker in the world who is not a Christian, he comes to one or the other of those conclusions. He either sits, sinks down in despair, or he sits in the corner in his cynicism and speaks thus about life. Now then, I'm here to say this, that the Bible answers all that and denies it. It says, yes, what you've been saying is true in a sense, but you've left out the most important factor, God. Blessed is the man. Happiness is possible, even in this world. Peace, perfect peace in this dark world of sin, yes. 
the blood of Jesus whispers peace within. This is a great protest against the despair, the hopelessness, the cynicism of a world without God. That's the first thing I find in the theory here. But let me mention a second thing. The theory of the Bible with regard to the secret of happiness, and this again is most important. For once more, the Bible is unique and separate and different from everything else. And the Bible tells us here at the very outset that we don't find happiness because we seek it in the wrong way. You see, that's where theory comes in. Most people say, I'm out for happiness, and off they go. My friends, sit down, wait for a moment, look at the theory. You must learn how to look for happiness because if you don't look in the right way, you'll never arrive. If you start on the wrong road, you'll arrive at the wrong destination. It's as simple as that. So you've got to be right in your theory. And the Bible has got its theory with regard to the secret of how happiness is to be found. Now then, this is what it says. Negatively, happiness does not depend ultimately upon circumstances. Isn't that important? We all think, don't we, that our happiness depends upon circumstances. Pockets full of money, sun shining, all's well. Oh, but if I lose my money or if circumstances go against me, how can I be happy? Man's happiness depends upon circumstances and events and happenings. And as you look forward into this year, 1963, no doubt you've said to yourself, if this happens, oh, how wonderful it's going to be. If, that, if it doesn't happen, well then, chaos has come again. And I can never be happy and I never shall be happy. Oh, but how wrong that is. Here's the first principle of the biblical teaching. Happiness does not depend at all upon circumstances and events and happenings. The second negative is this one. That happiness must never be sought as an end in and of itself. Here is the great wisdom of the Bible. Happiness is an end not in and of itself. It's a byproduct of something else. Now, if there is one thing that the Bible says more than anything else, it's just precisely that. Blessed is the man that seeketh after blessedness. No, blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, but who delighteth in the law of the Lord, and in the Lord doth meditate day and night. He's not seeking happiness. Oh, this is the essence of wisdom. You seek happiness and live for happiness, you'll never get it. Never. That's the great message here. Now, I've put it in the Old Testament garb, but let me put it in its New Testament form. Listen to our Lord. Blessed, he says, he are they who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Not blessed are they that hunger and thirst after happiness. No, no. Blessed, happy are they that do hunger and thirst after righteousness. They shall be filled. They'll be filled with happiness. Not the people who seek this elusive happiness, but the people who seek righteousness. They'll get happiness. Or again, look how he put it later on in that same sermon on the mountain, a verse that we read at the beginning this evening. Here it is. Look here, says our Lord. 
You're making an awful mistake. You were saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? Wherewithal shall we be clothed? My happiness depends upon food and drink and clothing. And what's going to happen to me? Oh, the tragedy of your blindness, says our Lord. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these other things shall be added unto you. They're thrown into the bargain. You seek happiness, you'll never find it. It'll always elude you. It'll always escape you. You think you've got it. Suddenly it's gone. It's like trying to catch an iridescent bubble. The moment you catch it, it's vanished. It's broken in your hands. There's nothing left. No, no, that's the whole mistake, says the Bible. Get your theory right. Never make happiness an end in and of itself. It's always an indirect result. It is always a byproduct of something infinitely greater. Seek. Well, let me put all this positively. Happiness, as the Bible, depends upon two things only. One, our relationship to God and his righteousness. Two, what I am, not what's happening to me. Oh, what a profound book this is. Why don't people listen to it? Here's the secret. Happiness depends upon my relationship to God and his righteousness and upon what I am, not what happens to me. I'm never tired of quoting it. It puts it so perfectly. The fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves that we are underlings. It's you yourself, not what happens to you. Two men looked out through prison bars. One saw mud, the other stars. Circumstances identical, but all the difference in the two men. Where was the difference? It was in the men. A primrose by a river's brim, a yellow primrose was to him, and it was nothing more. That's one sort of men, but here's another. To me, the meanest flower that blows can give thoughts that do often lie too deep for tears. Beauty, my friend, is in the eye of the beholder. It isn't circumstances, it isn't events, it isn't happenings that are going to determine whether you're going to be happy or not in 1963. It is your relationship to God, it is what you yourself are. There it is. This is the theory. Very well, let's move on from the theory to the practice. And again, it's as simple and as plain and as explicit as anything can be. If any of us ever arrives in hell, we'll have nobody to blame but ourselves. You'll never be able to say that it was so involved and difficult and complicated you couldn't follow it. Isn't this ABC? Isn't this essentially simple? Listen, here's the practical. He doesn't stop at the theory. He works it out in details. He knows us so well. Well, what is the practice? Well, he says, blessed is the man that walketh not. Here it is again. Starts with a negative. What's the matter with this Bible? We don't like negatives, do we? We are much too intelligent. We don't need to be told what not to do. What we want is to be told what to do. Isn't that the modern attitude? The Bible's always saying, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. Of course it is. Why? Well, let me tell you. Here it is. Blessed is the man that walketh not. And not and not. Negative before positive. Why? Well, I know of nothing again that is more important as one faces life than to understand why the negative comes before the positive. And here are the answers. I've got six of them. 
You ready for them? Six of them. One, the Bible starts with a negative because it's the most realistic book in the whole world. The Bible starts always with the world as it is. We don't like that. What do we do? Oh, we start by painting pretty pictures. Here we are setting out in life. Now then we say, I'm going to be happy. So we paint a wonderful picture. We begin to dream. And that's why we never find happiness. You must start by being a realist. You've got to start with the world as it is and where it is. I know that that's most uncomfortable. One doesn't like to do it. I'm reminded of the story of the Irishman. You remember the men traveling in art and suddenly stopped a man working on the roadside and said, Now, my friend, he said, if you were going from here to Dublin, which way would you go? And the answer the Irishman came was this, I wouldn't go from here. Very well, there's a very profound lesson in that, isn't there? But that's it, we're all Irishmen. We're all Irishmen in a spiritual sense. How do you go? I wouldn't go from here. Exactly. In other words, you don't want to face yourself, do you? You want to start somewhere else. You want to make a leap of a thousand miles. Then you're going to start in your chartered aeroplane to happiness. But my dear friend, you are where you are. And you've got to start from here, whether you like it or not. Realism. And the Bible never evades the facts, but it makes us face them with a stark reality that nothing else in the world does. Here's the most honest book in the world. Secondly, the Bible always starts with its negative condemnation because the first thing it has to tell us is that life as it is in this world is evil. It is the first statement in the Bible. There is no hope for man until he's convicted of sin. The first thing a man's got to get hold of is that as he is, he's wrong. And that his whole world is wrong. It's evil, it's vile. Blessed is the man that walketh not. It shouts it at us, it pulls us up, and we need to be shouted at. We need to be pulled up. Isn't life wonderful, says the world? We've all come to London, life in London. No, says the Bible, it's evil, it's foul, it's ugly, it's vile. It starts with a negative condemnation. And then, if you like it on a more intelligent level, the Bible starts with a negative always. Because if you want to be a good physician of the soul or of anything else, you better start with making a diagnosis before you rush after treatment. You've got to spend a little time in investigating the case before you apply some soothing syrup. We don't like that. We say, give me something to drink. Give me something that will ease my pain. Give me something that will make me feel happy. No, no, my friend, if you're a good physician, you say, now, what's the cause of this man's trouble? I must investigate. I must examine. You must take his history. You must pummel him. You must investigate and delve into the depths until you know the cause of his trouble. And if you start treating without discovering the cause, oh, you're a criminal physician. But that's what the whole world is doing. It never likes to make a diagnosis. It says, come with us. Look here, I'll take you, I'll give you a show, I'll put something before you. You've never seen anything so wonderful in all your life. Come with me. And at once it can give you in a package everything you want, but it can't. You've got to start with diagnosis. You've got to start with discovering the cause. 
The first question to ask is this. If you say you want to be happy, well then I say to you, the first question is, why are you unhappy? Why aren't you happy? It's common sense, isn't it? Very well, that's how the Bible puts the negative first. Reason number four. The first step to salvation always is recognition of evil and repentance. Repent and believe the gospel. John the Baptist always precedes the Lord Jesus Christ. Conviction of sin always comes before pardon and forgiveness. No man will find happiness until he's turned away from evil finally and has committed himself to God. Reason number five. And this is the most important of all. I'll put five and six in one for you in order to emphasize it. The Bible hurls a negative at us at the very beginning like this in order to tell us that God's way of life and of salvation is entirely different and essentially different from all we've ever known, all we have, all we think, and everything that is most popular in this world tonight. In other words, the Bible comes and says this, the way of happiness is not what you and all others have always fondly thought it is. It's entirely different. If you come and listen to me, says the Bible, you've got to be prepared for a surprise. You've got to be prepared to hear something you've never heard in your life before, something you've never imagined even, something that is revolutionary, something that comes from another world. Precisely, that's exactly what it is. This isn't man, this is God. This isn't earth, it's heaven coming down. This is eternity coming into time. It's altogether different. The way of the blessedness is not. It's a no to everything in which we've ever believed and trusted. It's going to be something that man has never cogitated or thought of or imagined at the very height of his powers and abilities. It is God's and it's different and it's unique. It's new. Very well, then. There is the explanation of the negatives. Well, now, then, let us come to the actual details. I'm not going to keep you. They're quite simple. What have I got to avoid? Well, first, the counsel of the ungodly. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. Look here, it means just this. If you want to be happy, the first thing you've got to do is to stop listening to the whole outlook of the world at the present time, which is without God and opposed to God and which doesn't recognize God. That's why the world is as it is, because it's ungodly. God is not in all his thoughts, says the psalmist again, about this same sort of evil men. If you want to be happy, says the Bible, don't walk in the counsels of the ungodly. What do you mean, what's he mean by counsels? Well, it explains itself. It's what he advises you to do. And what the ungodly man advises you to do is this, he says... Don't waste your time in going to those chapels and churches. Don't waste your time in reading that old book called The Bible. It's out of date, exploded science has knocked it into a cocked hat. There's nothing there at all. Don't believe in God. Believe in yourself. Ungodly. That's his counsel. He trusts his own wisdom. He trusts his own understanding. He trusts his own knowledge, though... He has to admit that what was believed as science 50 years ago is now laughed at and 
So on throughout the centuries, and undoubtedly what is believed now will be left that in 50 years he still trusts it. Trusts his own reason. Trusts his own insights. Trusts his own investigations and discoveries. He trusts himself and his own innate powers, and he dismisses God and everything that God represents. There is the ungodly. But, you know, it's a very interesting word here that was used, and it is translated as ungodly. In the very word that's used, there is a sense of restlessness. And the ungodly must be restless because he doesn't know. He's always having to change his theories. Something is discovered which disproves his theory. You know, I'm old enough to remember I was taught that the atom was indivisible. It was the smallest particle of matter. There was nothing smaller. The atom, the ultimate small thing, nothing could be smaller. Gone, exploded completely. So, you see, the ungodly and his counsel is always restless, he's uncertain, he doesn't know, his knowledge is contingent. Very well, says the Bible, don't walk in the counsels of such a man. Don't listen to him. Secondly, don't stand in the ways of the sinners. There's no need to explain this. If you want to be happy, my friend, you avoid the way of the world, the way of the sinner. He lives to his flesh. He lives to eat and to drink and to indulge his sex. All right. I'm not here to preach against things. I'm just here to tell you you'll never find happiness that way. Nobody ever has. They think they have. They soon find they haven't. Don't stand in the way of sinners. It'll never give you happiness. And then don't sit in the seat of the scholars. Who are these? These are the scoffers. These are the men who push out their tongues at everything that is sacred and holy and sanctified. These are the men, the clever men, who laugh at religion and joke and sneer at it, who scoff at God, scoff at his law, scoff at his ordinances, scoff at all the sanctities in life, marriage and everything else. These are the people who scoff at morality and decency. They call it self-expression. These are the people, the clever people, the popular people today, who make fun of everything. That was the week that was. Nothing is sacred. Nothing's to be admired. Everything's to be laughed at. Everything's to be joked about. Royalty, marriage, anything. God included. How clever it is. How facile. Praised by the critics. The seat of the scorners. The scoffers. The mere clever manipulators, the soulless men, the men who know nothing about the glories of life, the empty men who live on their wits and of nothing but wits, sitting in the seat of the scholars. Nothing precious, nothing tender, nothing beautiful, nothing clean, nothing worth dying for. Nothing at all. 
Now that is what he tells us in detail. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. Is there a progression here? Well, I believe there is. Walking, standing, sitting. It's a wonderful picture of the increasing grip that sin has on us all. The increasing grip of any bad practice or evil habit. At first you walk with it, you say, oh, I'm not going to be a slave to this. I'm walking, I'm still moving. Yes, but a stage will soon come when you'll be standing and no longer walking. A stage will come when you'll be sitting. It'll have got you in your grip, in its grip, and there you'll be seated. The increasing grip that evil practices and habits have upon the soul. But I believe there's another aspect to this progression, and that is... The increasing paralysis that is produced by sin. How it causes a man and the finest things in him always to degenerate. So that I say he can no longer walk, he just stands. And finally there he is sitting in the corner and saying, What's the use of anything? Let us eat, drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Sitting in the seat of the scorner. What a description. There he is. He's useless. He's motionless. He does nothing. He affects nothing. He just sits and mutters and splutters out his cleverness. The scoffer and the scorner. He knows nothing about happiness. Don't listen to him. He's about as far removed from happiness as a man can be. He's lost everything. He's got nothing. And he's got no hope at all. He's just sitting paralyzed by evil and by sin. Well, there is the negative. Let me just give you in a word the positive. It's simply the outworking of the theory I gave you at the beginning. Here's the secret of happiness. It is that a man delights in the law of the Lord, not in the cleverness of the philosophers or the speculations of the so-called thinkers, not in following the ungodly with their own meditations and cogitations, but the law of the Lord, the Bible, God's rule, Old Testament and New, the law and the gospel. Here it is. Everything I need, God's way to happiness, it's all here before me. He delights in it, you notice. He doesn't merely take an intellectual interest in it. He doesn't read it merely because he's afraid of not doing so and afraid of the consequences of sin. He doesn't uh, look into it simply because he's a utilitarian and he may think it'll help him. Honesty is the best policy and I want to get on and I don't do things because I want to get on. That's not his attitude. He delights in the law of the Lord. He has great pleasure in doing so. He says, isn't it wonderful? He meditates in it day and night. Why? He says, there's nothing like it. He says, everything else is vain, everything else is a sham, everything else is a will-o'-the-wisp. Here it is, God's truth, God's wisdom, and how marvelous it works. It gives me what I want. He meditates in it day and night. He enjoys it. This is the happy man. Let me put it to you as this man himself puts it. Our translation isn't quite as good as it might be. I read here, blessed is the man, but you know what the psalmist wrote was this. Oh, the blessedness of the man 
You see the oh, oh, the blessedness. Why? Well, to bring out the fullness. To bring out the variety. To bring out the largeness. He says, I can't describe it. Oh, the blessedness. How wonderful it is. Listen to Isaac Watts trying to reduce all that to verse. See the streams of living water springing from eternal love. Well, supply thy sons and daughters and all fear and want remove. Who can faint while such a river ever flows their thirst to assuage. Grace which, like the Lord, the giver, never fails from age to age. Oh, the blessedness. What? Well, the blessedness of the knowledge of sins forgiven. The blessedness of knowing that everything I did and said and thought in 1962 that was unclean and unworthy and sinful has been blotted out by God in his love because Christ died for me. Oh, the blessedness of knowing that the past has been forgotten and will never be brought against me again. What blessedness. Forgiveness and pardon. What else? Well, life in Christ. Life in God. He said, I am come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. That's it, the blessedness. Oh, the blessedness of receiving life from God and peace and joy and this abundance, this fullness. They shall go in and out and find pasture. There'll never be an end. There'll never be a cessation. Plenteous grace in the years found grace to cover all my sin. Let the healing streams abound. Make me, keep me pure within. Thou of life the fountain art. Freely let me take of thee. Spring thou up within my heart. Rise to all eternity. That's the blessedness. The blessedness that comes to the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly, who doesn't stand in the way of sinners, who doesn't sit in the seat of the scornful. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. Have you got this blessedness? Do you know this happiness? Do you delight in this book? Do you delight in God? Do you delight in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you delight in meditating about the joys and the glories of eternity? If you do, it doesn't matter what the world does to you. You'll continue to be blessed. You'll continue to be happy. Nothing can ever take it from you. It's in you. It's between you and God. It's independent of circumstances. Have you got this? How can a man get this? You can't make yourself enjoy the Bible. You try doing it and you'll find it doesn't work. You can't do it. You can't make yourself a righteous and a good man. Your will is too weak. Don't put the slightest faith in your New Year's resolutions. They'll soon have gone. How can I get this blessedness? There's only one way. Come to this book. And this book will meet you and say to you, now listen, 
You are unhappy and you're miserable because you've been living the life of the world, of men in sin. You've got to come out of that. How can you come out of it? You can't. Do as you will, you'll never extricate yourself. Listen, it says. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. The Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which is lost. Listen to this instruction, this law of the Lord, and it will tell you, repent and believe the gospel. Acknowledge your sin, acknowledge your failure. Believe that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God and that he came into this world and died on that cross to bear the punishment of your sin, to set you free, to reconcile you to God, to give you new life and to make you an heir of eternal bliss. Believe it. And you will find that he's put new life into you. You'll become a new man. You'll find that you really do enjoy the Bible. You'll delight in the law of the Lord. You'll want to read this more than anything else, and you'll lose your taste for the world and its fading pleasures. And you will want to know more about God and about Christ and about the hope of glory. Savior, if of Zion's city I, through grace, a member am. Let the world deride all pity. I will glory in thy name. Fading is the worldling's pleasure. All his boasted pomp and show. Solid joys and lasting treasure. None but Zion's children know. Do you know them? Listen to this wisdom. This is the way, the only way. Forsake the ungodly. His thought, his practice is everything. Believe the message of God in Christ. Receive it into your heart. Give yourself to him and ask him to fill you with this new life which alone can make us blessed and keep us blessed, whatever may happen to us in this world of time. Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust audio library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.